Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with one of my absolute favorite pieces of Hungarian music. It's by the other most celebrated Hungarian composer of all times, along with his great friend Bela Bartok, Zoltán Kodály. I probably should qualify that because, of course, Liszt was also Hungarian-born, and I don't want to leave him out. But certainly in the 20th century, these two gentlemen, Bartók and Kodály, dominated the Hungarian musical world. And uh, it was wonderful that they were such good friends and colleagues. They worked together a great deal as young men, not only composing and helping to build a great music world, musical world uh, for Hungary's capital in Budapest, but they also spent a lot of time in the pursuit of uh, ethnomusicological studies. They were both very interested in uh, and captivated by Hungarian and Eastern European uh, folk music and folk dance. And because all sorts of traditions were already being lost in the first part of the 20th century in the little villages, as there was more industrialization, more people moving to the big cities, many of the great traditions of the little villages were beginning to disappear. And so uh, Kodai and Bartok both went into the, the sort of back country of Hungary and the neighboring countries and uh, brought their little very prime- primordial recording equipment and uh, recorded all sorts of songs and and dances, folk music, folk ensembles, and used that music, both collected it and then shared it with uh, the world from from their homes in in Budapest, but also used it as the basis for a great deal of their own musical composition. In fact, Bartók, probably the most famous Hungarian composer of the 20th century, wove a great deal of Hungarian folk music into his own kind of musical language. And Kodai, in a certain way, did even more uh, because he didn't quite disguise it as much as, as Bartók, or in the case of Bartok, it actually became Bartok's own language, whereas Kodai very often in his pieces appropriated actual folk music and used it. No place more effectively than in this beautiful suite of dances, the Dances of Galanta, which he wrote kind of in the middle of his career. It was uh, written in honor of the 80th anniversary of the Budapest Philharmonic. And uh, it is in essence a collection of beautiful folk dances from the little village in which Kodai grew up. Uh, he was very privileged to live in this town that had an amazing, by all reports, folk ensemble, folk little orchestra, little band. And he heard this ensemble frequently and he sang many of the songs of the region. And so when it came time to write this very Hungarian piece for the Budapest Philharmonic, he uh, wove together all sorts of uh, dances from his hometown of Galanta. But what's so wonderful about the piece is not just that the songs and dances are, are beautiful, but it's the way in which Kodai uses the orchestra, the full symphony orchestra, to, to project the beauty of these of these dances. And uh, it is uh, an amazingly uh, sumptuous and dramatic orchestral tour de force. It's a piece that the Albany Symphony and I have never played in my 20-year tenure here, I'm, I'm surprised to say, because it's a piece that I used to do a, a lot when I was a very young conductor, so I'm delighted to share it with them and with all of you. Here now now Zoltan Kodai's Dances of Galanta. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion.
and WMHT.org. Next on the program was a very exciting centerpiece to the activities of the weekend, a quite extraordinary and a very, very ambitious song cycle by the fantastic American composer Christopher Rouse. Chris Rouse, I guess he's now in his 60s, but has really been a dominant figure in American concert music for the past 30 or so years. Uh, as a young man, he uh, actually decided to become a composer as a very young man, as, as a six-year-old, as he told us. But he, he never played an instrument. He, his parents wanted when they found that he was very interested in music when he, he was six. Uh, he told the story that um, he had listened to a lot of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, you know, the Little Richard, the music of the, of the day, and uh, had fallen in love with it. And his mother said, uh, handed him a uh, I guess they used to call those a record, a record of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and said, well, if you like all that other music, you might like this also. And he listened to it, and he absolutely fell in love with it, not uh, to the exclusion of all that rock and roll music, which would continue to inform his music through most of his long career. But um, he fell in love with Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and decided right then and there to become a composer. Interestingly, although his family really tried to help him with his compositional pursuits, they wanted to give him piano lessons or have him study an instrument, uh, he took some piano lessons and hated it and, and decided sort of as a a willful six-year-old that I guess he was, I want to be a composer. Why do I need to know piano or an instrument to be a composer? It's not playing an instrument I want to do. I want to compose. And interestingly, Rouse never took up an instrument with any degree of of seriousness or discipline, and yet he uh, became a very uh, impressive uh, composer. And I think in a certain way, uh, maybe his music is so original-sounding actually because it's not limited by his his mastery of a particular instrument and thus uh, that sort of informing his not wanting to do anything that's beyond what's possible. As he described it then, he spent about 11 years listening intently to all kinds of music, not really composing. Uh, and it was only when he was about 16 or 17 when he decided he wanted to go to college and study composing that he actually sat down and started writing music and emerged as a very original and exciting composer, very much influenced uh, by rock and roll music. And so his early pieces are all kind of head-banging, wild pieces. He then uh, became a professor at the Eastman School of Music, where he was a distinguished professor for many years and taught the most popular class at the school, I'm told, a class on the history of rock and roll, of which he is quite a scholar. Uh, as he matured, his music began to have less and less to do with his, his rock roots and more and more to do with the grand tradition. This is a fairly recent work. I think it was uh, premiered in 1998. It was a commission by the Minnesota Orchestra for the great soprano Don Upshaw, and David Zinman conducted the premiere. Uh, and Chris, when he was in graduate school, had fallen in love with North Indian music, uh, particularly poetry as well as music, and had written a set of songs uh, based on the poems of the uh, the 15th century poet uh, Kabir. And uh, Kabir is a, a great Indian mystic poet, some, somewhat religious, but also often uh, irreverent and funny and incredibly uh, strong, beautiful poetic imagery. Uh, this piece never really came to anything. It was never performed. He sort of put it in a back closet. And then in the 90s, when he was asked to write this piece for the Minnesota Orchestra, he remembered the Kabir songs and took out the poems and, and actually reset many of the original poems he'd set and also set some additional ones. So there are six incredible poems that Chris sets in this 30-minute song cycle. They are sung without interruption. So each 
poem sort of evolves into the next poem. But I'll give you kind of a little bit of of uh, some signposting so you know roughly where you are in the uh, in the the storyline in the, the set of six poems. I should mention the orchestra is a fairly conventional orchestra, but it certainly doesn't sound conventional. It's very exotic sounding. The only kind of instrument that he really adds to the orchestra is the accordion, which sounds kind of like a, a sort of a Hindi harmonium that's often heard in, in, in different kinds of ensembles in India. But he makes liberal use of kind of his own imagined world of, of the Indian sonic uh, world. So he sort of creates his own imaginary Indian sonic world. The first poem is uh, a poem that begins, The musician plays a peerless instrument with eight sky mouths thundering. I should mention there's a lot of musical imagery in Kabir's poetry. I think that's one of the things that drew Chris so strongly to it. And, and so the, the piece begins with this incredible kind of crashing a sound of the eight sky mouths thundering. But it only goes on for, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 seconds. Then the music becomes very soft and very raga-like. And above this sort of uh, Indian raga a drone, the the oboe sings, and the oboe sings in this very exotic Indian way. And the first poem is all about, uh, essentially it's about music and the power of music. Uh, so it's a beautiful evocation of, of the gods of music. Uh, the next poem, the second poem, is all about the flute of the infinite. The poem begins, the flute of the infinite is played without ceasing, and its sound is love. And as Chris described to us, in a moment of incredible creativity, he decided to represent the flute of the infinite with the sound of a flute. So you'll know that you've reached the second movement when you hear virtually nothing in the orchestra except the solo flute and then the, the singer dialoguing with the flute. And, and there's sort of three points in this piece. At first you hear the solo flute, the beginning and the end of the song, and in the middle you hear kind of a flute duet. So it's all about the flute of the infinite and the song is love. Then in the third song, all hell basically breaks loose. This is kind of a, an allegory in which all the animals are celebrating, animals of the wild are celebrating a marriage. The lions and the tiger, the wild bear, the billy goat, uh, and, and and they run the farm, they're running the farm, and there's this whole wedding. Uh, and so not surprisingly, Chris plants the sounds of different uh, animals. You'll hear the trombones kind of growl, these kind of wonderful roars for the lion. You'll hear at one point the singer kind of do a kind of eh, a sort of nanny goat, billy goat sort of bleating sound in her actual singing. Uh, but you'll, you'll know you're in this third song because all of a sudden the pace picks up. The, the rhythm is very jagged. It's an incredibly difficult movement to play. There are 13, 16 bars and 15, 16 and 17, 16. And, but we had a great time doing it. And then after a, about two minutes of wildness uh, of, this, of this particular poem, we reach the fourth song. You'll know we're at the fourth song because the singer actually speaks the beginning of this text. Saints, I see the world is mad. If I tell the truth, they rush to beat me. If I lie, they trust me. And it's all about the corruption of the world, both in politics and in religious leaders. And uh, it's kind of an angry screed with the, the orchestra sort of very rough, rough playing. He even said at one point, I want, I want them to sound like garbage, he said. Uh, which was very encouraging to us because that's much easier than sounding beautiful. But he really wanted a rough kind of thing. So you'll hear that in the fourth song after she intones spoken this Hindi text, the saints, saints I see the world is mad. And then finally that dies down after a couple of moments, uh, minutes. And then we have a beautiful sort of mesmerizing, mesmeric section. You'll hear the trumpet and the horn sort of weaving this tapestry of very steady fast notes, six tuplets. This whole sixth movement is about a woman, a uh, 
seated at her loom, weaving. A woman who is parted from her lover spins at the spinning wheel. The city of the body arises in its beauty, and within it the palace of the mind has been built. The wheel of love revolves in the sky, and the seat is made of the jewels of knowledge. Beautiful, beautiful love imagery. And this whole sixth song just has this continuing, running, beautiful sextuplet figure that's passed around the orchestra. And then finally, the last song uh, is a very still, uh, it's actually a very ecstatic poem, but Chris sets it in a very creative way. It's a very still and very, uh, again, a very beautiful, gentle setting uh, of an ecstatic religious poem. The Lord is in me, the Lord is in you, as life is in every seed. And you'll know you've reached the last song because something very magical happens. You'll hear off stage a group of about eight string players and then eventually a few percussionists playing in the great, great distance. And that eventually brings the onstage orchestra to join the singer. And uh, But the music never gets very active. It stays very still, and it's mainly driven by the singer singing very gentle, beautiful uh, poetry uh, along with this offstage orchestra with which she interacts. And that is, in fact, the ending. The, the, last, uh, the last lines are, again, a beautiful homage to music. How blessed is Kabir that amidst this great joy he sings within his own vessel. It is the music of the meeting of soul with soul. It is the music of the forgetting of sorrows. It is the music that transcends all coming in and going forth. So here now, Chris Rouse's Kabir Padavali, or Kabir songs in translation, they are sung in Hindi by the radiant soprano Talis Trevigne, accompanied by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The second half of our program featured one of our very famous guest artists, the legendary pianist Yefim Bronfman, who tours the world playing with all the greatest orchestras, uh, much in demand, and we're always so touched that he makes time every year or two to stop in and, and do a concerto with us. This year, uh, it is the Beethoven Fifth, the mighty so-called Emperor Concerto, Beethoven's last piano concerto. The Emperor Concerto is quite a misnomer because Beethoven would have hated the title uh, at this point in 1809, the sort of end of his, quote, heroic period when he wrote his last sort of big middle period works. Beethoven was pretty disenchanted with the emperor, with Napoleon. In fact, at about this time, uh, Beethoven wasn't feeling much love for the French or for their emperor uh, because Vienna was first under siege by the, uh, by the French army and then the French uh, occupied the city. And that was the time during which Beethoven was writing this piece. In fact, during the siege that preceded it, Beethoven Beethoven writes about how he had to take uh, shelter in his brother's basement, in Carl's basement, uh, and because his ears were so sensitive, even though he was virtually deaf, um, his ears were extremely sensitive, and he had to sort of cover his ears with pillows all night long as the big bombardment was going on of the, of the, of the French army against the, the capital. They eventually occupied the city, and Beethoven wrote this piece 
But he would have been very unhappy to think that it sort of has uh, gained this title uh, somehow connected to Napoleon. There are different theories about how that came about. Uh, one is that uh, a, a, a later uh, student of Beethoven, Frederick Hiller, uh, when he did the piece, said it's you know it's about the emperor, and that sort of stuck. Or another theory is that a French uh, a French soldier heard the premiere, and at some point in the in the piece, he said, "Oh, c'est l'empereur! It's the that that's the sound of the emperor." Whatever the case, the uh, the moniker has stuck, uh, and yet uh, Beethoven would not have approved. But the piece, while not being about Napoleon in any way, certainly is a heroic, dramatic, monumental utterance in Beethoven's sort of high heroic style. If you think back to the Eroica Symphony, which was written some uh, five or six years, six or so years earlier, and all the works from this this heroic middle period, this is one of the most heroic, all sorts of sort of trumpet calls and marches and things in it. Uh, it's a rather unconventional piece by by contemporary standards, Beethoven's own time, in that usually at the end of a first movement of a major concerto, there would be a, a sort of stop point at which the soloist would execute a gigantic cadenza, a, a creation of his or her own, in which they take the themes uh, just before the final the final closing portion of, of the first movement. Uh, the cadenza sort of is a moment for the, the soloist to strut his or her stuff. And this was very much the standard in Beethoven's time, in Mozart's time, and, and before, and even to a certain extent after. And Beethoven actually had had, uh, had cadenzas in most of his earlier concerti, and occasionally composers would write out cadenzas for their students or for their own use. Beethoven himself actually wrote out cadenzas for a couple of first movements of Mozart's piano concertos, a couple of his favorite pieces. And he also wrote out some possible uh, cadenzas for his uh, for his own earlier concerti, particularly the first piano concerto, very famous cadenzas for that one. But in this era, improvisation was a big part of a performer-composer skill. Uh, you know, most of the performers, or virtually all the performers, were composers, and the composers were performers, and they were all incredible improvisers. And yet in this piece, the, the Emperor Concerto, Beethoven was very explicit. When you reach the point where the cadenza normally would have been, he actually writes in Italian, this is not a place for a cadenza. Do not not play a cadenza here, go completely on with the music. But in essence, he actually had written all sorts of little cadenzas into the piece, starting at the very beginning in a very unconventional way with a big orchestra chord, three big orchestra chords, in fact, each followed by a sort of mini cadenza. And that material then re- returns another time. And then there is sort of a, an extended composed out not quite a cadenza, but almost a cadenza near the end. But what's interesting is that at this point in his in his artistic development, Beethoven just didn't want people messing with his stuff as much as he had been willing to earlier in his career. He really wanted to have control of the architecture uh, of his own material. And that's, I think, why he didn't want anybody creating you know fanciful cadenzas that maybe were not stylistically echt along inside his, his Emperor Concerto. The piece is in three movements. The first movement is very extensive, very extended, almost 20-minute long movement, very dramatic and powerful, devilishly challenging piano part, which Yevim Bronfman executes with incredible ease. The second movement, very contrasting and in a very remote key. The, the piece is in E-flat major, very heroic key, same key as the Eroica Symphony. But the middle movement's in B major, about as far away from E-flat major as a composer can go. And it's a gorgeous aria, like a, a big song sung first uh, by the orchestra and then by the piano with the orchestra, sort of a total of three three times through this beautiful song uh, with, um, with some interludes between it. And that leads in a very magical way to a, a really uh, dramatic, heroic, bumptious finale uh, as the, the slow movement ends. It's as if, uh, well, well, this slow movement ends in B major 
and the bassoons are holding a, a B, just the, that note. And then the, the horns come in with a, a note a half step below, a B flat, sort of a sudden drop down, which is something that Beethoven loved to do. And then on top of that, the piano begins to intone, bum 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 and then another one of those, and then eventually, boom, bam, he's off with this incredible bum ba da bum ba da ba da ba da ba da dum da da dum bum ba da dum, and the movement comes to a triumphant close. Now, unfortunately, uh, Yefim Bronfman uh, doesn't generally allow orchestras in live performance to then broadcast his performance. Uh, I think he wants sort of like Beethoven, perhaps, to have control over over his material. And yet we have a, a performance of him uh, performing the Beethoven Fifth Piano Concerto. It's with David Zinman and the Zurich Tonhalle Orchestra. Here they are now. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.